I'm turning there first so you can't beat me to it here tonight. (laughs) All right, well, the title of tonight's message is Glorify the Lord. Glorify the Lord. And this is going to come from Psalm 29. As you think about that phrase, glorify the Lord, it made me think of a very famous Christian truth or Christian saying that was summarized some 400 years ago or so. When you think about glorifying the Lord, it makes you think of what is my purpose? And people universally struggle to determine their purpose in life. That's one of the top number of questions if you were to ask people or talk to people about things that they struggle with understanding or they're searching for. The thing that keeps them restless, the reason that they don't have peace or contentment is that they're struggling to find their purpose. Why was I created? Where do I come from? Why am I here? Why do I even exist? What is the point of it all? And you see people when they're desperate and as they get to the end of themselves, very often it's because they haven't been able to find a satisfactory answer to that basic question in life. What is my purpose? Why, what, why am I even here? Why do I exist? And that happens consciously and unconsciously as people seek to find meaning in their lives, that they're asking these questions. What is, what is my purpose? And they don't always have it front and center in their mind, but it's the thing that's keeping them disquieted. It's the thing that's causing them to be restless. It's oftentimes the thing that they are desperate to find an answer to without even knowing that they're asking the question. They lack any direction. They lack any purpose, and therefore they lack any joy, any peace, any contentment. All of things that God's Word says will accompany having a sense of why am I here, understanding what my purpose is, understanding what God's provision is to make a life that would have meaning and value could be filled with abundant, abundance of joy and gratitude and thanksgiving, what that would even look like because they don't know Christ. And as you think about this question, what is my purpose in life, man has been asking and wrestling with that question since creation. It's nothing new. It goes on today. It's something that people struggle with today. It's, people that, it's something that people have struggled with forever, going all the way back to the very beginning when man had a very clear purpose. It was to have a relationship with God. They knew what that was. They were enjoying that. But Satan ultimately got in the way as he offered an alternative that man jumped on. And that alternative was, instead of being built or made for a relationship with God, you don't need God at all because he doesn't really care for you. He's holding back from you. In fact, you could be your own God because that's what God is actually trying to prevent. He's trying to prevent you from being just like him. But wrapped up in all that, as I've said in the past, it wasn't just the sense that you could be God. It was the sense that to convince you that you didn't need God was to convince you that God doesn't really care for you. He didn't have your best interest in mind. And so from there on out, as man was now tainted by the sin that had entered into the world by one man, Adam, and as that sinfulness, that desire to elevate self, that natural influence that we have to always put me first. As the flesh plays itself out in a very obvious and overt way, though we don't even know it oftentimes, this idea of I'm more important, my own happiness, my own purposes are more important than anything else. Well, as man had that mentality, they found that that wasn't satisfying. It wasn't the kind of thing that could feed a soul. It wasn't the kind of thing that could provide lasting joy and lasting contentment because there was no real purpose because it wasn't God's purpose for their lives. Now, if you think about church history, and I don't often get into church history, but in terms of church history, nearly 400 years ago, there was a gathering of 151 theologians. Most of them were Presbyterian and Puritan, 
But they gathered together. It was at a place called Westminster. And they came up, they sought to identify and a- answers to quite a few different common questions associated with Christian faith. But they sought to identify man's primary purpose as part of a greater effort to answer 107 common theological questions. This is again nearly 400 years ago. I think it's like 390 years ago that that took place. Now the, first, the very first question, 107 common theological questions, 151 prominent theologians, and the number one question they tackled was, what is the chief end of man? That was the first and most famous question that was tackled as a part of that gathering. And the answer that came from that, the answer they came up with was, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, I'm be honest with you, I, I had heard the first half of that, and I've quoted it over the pulpit in the past, because it's pretty, it's, it's pretty popular in terms of theological sayings. The chief end or the chief aim, the chief purpose of man, you could say, is to glorify God. But the sentence doesn't end there. It's the chief end of man, or man's chief end, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now that statement is absolutely just loaded and we're going to see how the Bible speaks to that in many different places but one passage here, Psalm 29, that we'll look at tonight. And that summary statement, it was based on a number of biblical passage, passages. We'll look at several besides just Psalm 29 but Psalm 29 is one passage that emphasizes the need to glorify God by keeping the spotlight and emphasis on Him. As you think about what is my perfect purpose, it's to glorify God, what does that mean? to keep him in the place of prominence, to keep him in the rightful place of preeminence, to keep the spotlight of my life, so to speak, and the emphasis that I have in my thinking, put my focus and keep my focus on him. So let's take a look at Psalm 29. If you haven't turned there, turn there, if you will. And then we'll read through this psalm to give us a little bit of context and then we'll go through it. Lord willing, we'll get through these verses here tonight. I think it's, yeah, it's 11 verses long. Let's start in verse 1, Psalm 29, verse 1. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Siron like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says, glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood and the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. So you think, again, we've talked about this, it's come up the last couple of Sundays, this idea that you're looking for peace, an inner tranquility. You're looking for that. Man is desperately needing that. And again, here's just another reminder that the only source for that peace is God himself. He's the one who's going to have to provide his kind of peace, inner harmony and tranquility. He's going to have to provide it to the one who is trusting him as a byproduct of trusting him and resting in him, then as a byproduct of that rest, we have 
that peace of God, the peace that God can offer us because he's a God of peace as came out on Sunday. Now as we break down this psalm a little bit more though here tonight, we see this first section, glorify the Lord. That's where, I, where we get our, our title here, glorify the Lord. I just want to focus because these first two verses really go together. So let's look at them just one more time. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. So the main idea there is give unto the Lord glory and strength. And who is he addressed to? Everybody who maybe thinks they're something. You know, you see how he, t- he singles out the mighty ones? They may actually be mighty from man's perspective. Maybe they're just mighty in their own eyes though. But he addresses this to them. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Those who, you, those who would be especially prone to self-glory and to self-confidence and to self-dependence. Remembering that one of the primary themes that the Bible tackles over and over is this distinction or differentiation between learning to have a dependent mind where I'm going to trust God to do for me what I can't do for myself versus having an independent spirit that seeks to fix what's wrong with myself through my own strength, to deal with my own problems, to handle things on my own apart from the power and provision of God working in and through me and working in my life. And so, interesting that David uses that language, but the takeaway here is give unto the Lord glory and strength that applies universally to every man. Verse 2, give unto the Lord the glory due his name. That's another way of saying the same thing. We'll touch on that in a second. Then ending with worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So the charge or reminder is to glorify God. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. We see that the second half of verse 1. Now the stated reason is that he deserves it. He's worthy is another way of saying that. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Meaning he has every reason to be glorified. He has every reason to be exalted. He has every reason to be praised and lifted up. And we'll touch on some of that in a moment, how that is really just an extension of this idea of what it means to glorify God. So we say, give the Lord, give unto the Lord the glory due his name as the reason that man should glorify, give unto the Lord glory and strength or glorify God. Now it says here at the end of verse 2 that doing so is an act of worship. It involves the feeling and then expression of high adoration, reverence, trust, Love, loyalty, and dependence toward God. Now, when you think about what causes me to worship or exalt or lift up God, it's because I'm convinced that God is good. I have an adoration for God. I have a reverence, a trust, a love, loyalty, and dependence that I, that I feel toward God and then express it in a way that that is to glorify God. As my worship is to make verbal or make known, it could be internal too, but to make known to God these attributes or these things that have caused to have caused to come into my thinking or are characteristic of my thinking that I adore God I revere God I trust God I love him I'm loyal to him in the sense that I want his will to be done in my life and I'm depending on him that causes me to worship him what does worship mean to put my focus on him to lift him up to exalt him to magnify his name and so this is all kind of goes together. So giving glory to the Lord is, an, is a way or it's a means by which we can worship the Lord. Now, this phrase in the beauty of holiness means as his holiness shines forth or is revealed. Now, 
some of the language that we come across in the Bible, you could say, well, I have a little bit different take on that. Well, maybe you would. This isn't the clearest phrase here as you talk about in the beauty of holiness. But as I looked at it in different translations or explanations for what is meant by that, I'm most convinced by this one, that I worship the Lord as his holiness shines forth or is revealed to me. Now remember this whole thing, we're going to touch on it quite a bit tonight, is relational. So as I'm enjoying the Lord, I'm enjoying intimate fellowship with the Lord. I'm trusting, depending, walking in union with the Lord. As I am tapped into him, my focus is on him. As I'm seeing his character revealed in my life, as I'm getting to know him more, that produces in me this sense of adoration. It produces in me this sense of I am blown away and in awe of my God. I learn to love him more as I see how much he loves me. I learn to depend on him as I see him moving and working in my life. As he shows himself to be faithful, that convinces me that he's trustworthy. He's worthy of my dependence. And so as you think about as in the measure that his holiness shines forth or is revealed to me, the, the result ought to be that I would want to worship him. I wouldn't want to keep the focus on myself. I would want the focus to be on him. Now, you can ask the question, what is involved in giving God glory? Because there's a lot of phrases that we sing, a lot of phrases that we say. Say, for example, one of the most famous songs in Christendom is the song, To God be the glory, great things he has done. What are we talking about, though, when we're saying, give God glory? Well, one thing that we ought not to be confused about is we're not giving God something he doesn't already have. We're, to give God glory is not to give him something he doesn't already have. God's glory refers to the manifestation of his distinctive excellence, including his purity, his holiness, his majesty, his splendor, and his magnificence. The manifestation of that is God's glory. God already has glory, whether you attribute it to him or not. Whether you glorify him by pointing the spotlight or putting the focus on him doesn't change the fact that he's a glorious God. He's filled with glory by virtue of his very character, by virtue of his very essence. So God is glorious by virtue of his very nature and his divine attributes. You don't provide God with glory. He already has it. So you glorify God. What does it mean to glorify God? It's not to provide him with some sort of distinction that he doesn't already have. It's to recognize or honor him in terms of you glorify God by honoring him, recognizing his majesty, and acknowledging who he is, his attributes and his characteristics, and the work that he does, his acts that he has done, the things that he has done. So when you say to God be the glory, great things he has done, meaning I am acknowledging God's work. I'm acknowledging what God has done. I'm acknowledging who God is and I'm lifting that up. I'm recognizing it. I'm honoring him by putting the spotlight on his person and character and work. That's what it means to glorify God. Not to give him something he lacks, but to recognize and then express that recognition about what we can observe and acknowledge and recognize about God as he's working in our life. Remember, we're going to see that these things are tied together. We don't have glory for God apart from a relationship with God. So if I was going to summarize it, I would say to give God glory is to keep the spotlight of your life, both internally, how you're thinking, 
what you're fixated on, what you're focused on, what you're captivated by. Keep that spotlight on him or on God. And then externally to keep the spotlight of your life on him. Now, now the truth is, you have a light to shine. You, have an, you can give emphasis to certain things. You can make things or put the focus on certain things by your life. The things that you think, the things that you say, the things that you do, they can emphasize different things. So if you picture it like having a spotlight and your life is that spotlight and you have the opportunity to shine that on various things that show the kinds of things that at that moment you're occupied by, you're fixated on, you're captivated by, could you not shine that light in a bunch of different directions? And the answer is yes. Are you bringing God glory Are you lifting him up, magnifying him, making him bigger when you're shining that spotlight of your life on other things besides him? The answer is, this isn't rocket science. No, you're not. Now, what are some of the alternatives? Well, literally anything. Anything that that could captivate your focus and your attention and your interest besides God at any given time. Now, is it always the same things? And the answer is no. But your spotlight is always shining on something because that's the thing you're fixated and focused on. So can that be others at times? Yes. Can it be things in life? Can it be activities in life? Can it be goals and dreams in this temporal world? Yes. Can it be yourself? Can you have the spotlight flipped around so that it's actually pointing at you? And the answer is yes. But is that where it should be pointed? In the moments that it's not pointed or focused and fixated on him, are we bringing him glory? Are we elevating him in those moments? And the answer is no, we're not. We're not honoring him, recognizing his majesty, or acknowledging his person and his work while we have the spotlight of our lives focused on something else. Now think of some synonyms some other ways of saying the same thing. This is a common theme in the Bible, that our focus and fixation, the thing that we're occupied with, is supposed to be God. And there's a lot of ways of saying that. Other words that came to mind would be the idea of uplifting Him. If you're uplifting God, what does that mean? You just keep putting Him higher. You keep holding Him forth to in your life, in, in a sense, you're carrying him around right out in front of you so everybody can see it. You're uplifting God instead of other things you could be promoting. What does it mean to be an ambassador for something, to be a representative of something? So if you're promoting or uplifting God, you're carrying him front and center in your life and saying, look at my God. Don't look at me, but look at my God. Look, what, look who he is and look what, what he's done. Another word you could pick, you could talk about uplifting something, but how about the idea of magnifying something? And we already touched on that particular word, but as you think about magnifying something, that would be to make it bigger. So when we say we magnify the Lord, we make him bigger. What does that involve? Well, to make him bigger, the easiest way to do that is to make everything else smaller in our lives, or of less importance. Another word that is somewhat synonymous is the idea of exalting. Exalting, again, is to keep the focus and the spotlight on him. Another synonym would be glorifying that we're talking about here today. Then we have praising, 
praising. To praise somebody means to lift them up or to put, again, the focus and the spotlight on them. You're saying, look at how great this thing is. Look at how wonderful this person is. I'm praising that thing or person. Now, as I was thinking about this idea of giving God glory, kind of keeping him in the spotlight of my life, you can't help but think about the alternative. See, your natural tendency is not to lift God up. That's not what your flesh will default to. By nature, you're always going to be focused on me first. And there's a lot of different ways that that can play itself out. Sometimes so deceptively that you will actually be known as somebody who is focused on others when in fact you're only doing that for self-serving reasons. The heart is that deceptive and deceitful that you can actually believe you're focused on noble and right and upright things and at the same time just be doing it so that other people think highly of you. But the point is our focus is supposed to be on him. Anything good we do is supposed to be motivated and directed by his spirit producing and working in us and through us a way or manner of living starting with a manner of thinking that would be led and directed and informed by God instead of our own human understanding that would be directed by divine viewpoint instead of human viewpoint. That would come from an eternal perspective instead of a temporal or worldly perspective. Now you cannot uplift, exalt, glorify, praise, and magnify God while at the same time being focused on yourself, your circumstances, or others. And I can't say that strongly enough. You cannot fulfill your purpose of making God bigger, keeping the spotlight on Him as you enjoy Him, and we'll get, we'll get to that. You can't do that while at the same time being fixated on yourself, your circumstances, or others. And some of the most difficult conversations that I even have in my young career, career as a pastor are dealing with and talking to people who are down and out. They're struggling desperately because they cannot get past the circumstances right in front of them, the other people that they blame for those circumstances or think are contributing negatively to their well-being, or themselves. Between those three things, that's the thing that's preventing them from experiencing the abundant life, the fullness of joy, the infinite peace, the perfect peace that God says that we can experience in this life when we're learning to trust Him. So they're missing all of those things, and they're miserable because of it, and these are believers that I'm talking about, and we all do that. that, that whoever it is that's, that's doing that, if, if that was you, that might have been you today doing some of that. That might have been you earlier on the car ride here, uh, finding yourself in a place where you were so fixated on yourself, your circumstances, or others, that there was no joy of the Lord in your life. There was no making Him bigger in your thinking. There was no counting your blessings and naming them one by one. There was no spirit of gratitude because we were captivated by these other things. And am I susceptible to that? Absolutely. And do I need people to pray for me about those things? Yeah. And do I need spiritual growth and maturity? Do I need to allow God to change me and transform me so that my thinking is less and less about myself, my circumstances, and others, and more and more fixated and focused on Him in a steadfast kind of a way that is unshakable and unmovable, where I can keep my eyes and keep my gaze on Him, regardless of the storms that I'm facing in my life, regardless of the difficult people that God has put in my life, regardless of my sinful self? Can, can God 
bring us to a place where we're less and less, less and less prone to being taken off a track and distracted? The answer is yes, if we'll let him work in us, if we'll let him transform us, if we'll stop being conformed to this world, if we'll stop being directed by our flesh, if we'll stop being driven by what we think will make us happy, our own wisdom, if we'll stop leaning on our own understanding, if we'll start trusting him and allowing his spirit to have his way in us, all of those things could be true. But you see that natural tendency leads to put our confidence and our focus and our occupation on other thing. It leads to nothing good. It's useless, in a sense, to be focused on self and circumstances and others because you get nothing out of it. You get nothing in return except for despair and frustration and misery. When has, when has focusing on any of that ever lifted you up? Show of hands one time that focusing on that ever lifted you up. And so... When, that's, when your thinking has been affected in that way, now you're starting to affect others around you, there's a tendency then for it to be kind of a snowball effect where people feed off of each other and instead of coming together even as a body of believers, the idea is that we'd come together, one of the things that we would do would be to, would be to challenge each other at times or to hear, more, more correct way of saying that would be to hear the challenges that God's word puts forth as we open God's word and study it. But there would be that exhortation side of it, but there'd be the edifying side of it. That idea of one of the chief things that's said to be beneficial about gathering together as a body of believers. Is it convenient on a Wednesday night after you've worked all day long, you can barely keep your eyes open, you've had all number of different things going on today? Is it always convenient to gather with other believers? And the answer is no. Are there a million other things you could be doing? Yes. Would many of them be good things in the sense of not even sinful things, just things that need to be attended to? And the answer is yes. And, and could it keep you from taking in God's word and being encouraged by it? See, one of the things about gathering together is that we would hear God's word that could convict us, could encourage us, could exhort us, but could edify and build us up is the other thing, that we would come together as a body of believers that could meditate on God's word, fellowship around God's word in a way that would build up the body. It's said over and over in the New Testament that would be one of the purposes of building up the body. Well, that's going to be impossible to do when you're focused on yourself, your circumstances, and others. You're going to have nothing that you could say to somebody while your mindset is in that place that is going to be spiritually beneficial to them. In fact, without even realizing it, it's going to turn out that you're actually a spiritual detriment to the people in your lives because you're of no spiritual encouragement to them. And that's not good. Are you fulfilling your purpose when that's true? No. Because your purpose was to keep the spotlight on him and to enjoy him. Let's not forget that second half which we're going to dive into here. Now, when you think about glorifying him, magnifying him, lifting him up. When you think about the idea of worshiping him, praising him, exalting him, you make him bigger by learning humility. You can't make him bigger while making yourself bigger at the same time. And that's ultimately our number one issue, which is why God says he hates pride. Because when we're proud and we don't have humility, God is not going to be able to make himself big. He's not, going to have, he's not going to be able to convince us that he's the thing that we should be fixated and focused on and exalting and lifting up. 
because we'll have muddied the water with our own self-focus, our own pride. And God needs us to learn to make ourselves small so that we can make him bigger to fill that space. But the thing we have to remember in all of this, and if you take only one thing away from this message, it's that the statement didn't end with man's chief end is to glorify God. It was man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Friends, this whole thing is relational. Too often we forget that. And we, we, we leave here with a takeaway saying, I need to get a little bit more focused on making God bigger in my life. I need to leave here with a little bit more focus on keeping the spotlight of my life on him. And all of a sudden, who's the focus still on? It's still on us. Because what started both of those statements? I need to. I need to. I need to accomplish my purpose. I need to make God bigger. I need to keep the spotlight on him. And no, friends... That's not the focus. That's not the takeaway. The whole thing starts with a relationship. It is only through living life with God in a personal, meaning it's not about everyone else. It's about your walk with the Lord. It's not about all of their problems. It's not about all the things they're doing that are detrimental to you. It's about your personal walk with the Lord. So if you're living life, it's only through living life with God in that personal, now the next word, experiential, meaning I'm tasting and seeing that the Lord is good because I'm actually depending and trusting on God. I'm learning to cast my cares on Him. I'm learning that He's a good God. I'm learning that He's a faithful God. I'm watching Him move in my life. I'm seeing Him lead and direct in my life. I'm seeing Him answer my prayers. And as I do that experientially, but also personally, and then last word is intimately. As I do it personally, experimentally, experientially, and intimately, then I can really see his majesty. As I learn to live life with God, I learn to trust him and include him and depend him, depend on him and draw nearer to him and not distance myself from God, not to distract myself with other things. But as I have that personal, experiential and intimate relationship with him, now I can grow. I can grow in my ability to trust the Lord. Now, as you enjoy him, I just want to follow the, the, the train of thought here. We don't start with glorifying God. We start with rightly relating to God and enjoying the relationship that he built us with. He built us for, sorry. So as I am doing that, as I'm having that personal, experiential, and intimate way of life, I'm, ex- I'm enjoying that. Then as I enjoy him, I automatically, naturally, and effortlessly praise him. I don't praise him because I'm focused on praising him. I praise him because I'm enjoying my relationship with him that is very experiential and personal and intimate. I'm enjoying that. And as I enjoy that, then I don't have to think about praising him. It's a natural byproduct of enjoying him. Glorifying God isn't hard work that we need to knuckle down and produce in our own lives. Enjoy, glorifying God or making him bigger, singing his praises, that's a byproduct of getting to know him, of living life with him, of being in awe of him, of being captivated by him, of learning more about him. And as I'm captivated and awestruck by him, I can't help but make him bigger. But not because I'm focused on my chief end is to glorify God. My chief end is to relate to God. I was built for a relationship to enjoy God. And as I enjoy God, then I naturally glorify God, not the other way around. Now, I'm not getting into some big debate 
about it, but I would reverse the order. If, we're, if you're going to summarize man's purpose, I wouldn't say it the way they did. And I'm not saying I'm smarter than them. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that I have more theological chops than them. I, I don't. But I would word it like this. I would say man's chief end is to enjoy God relationally and as a result to glorify him. As a result to glorify him. My focus is not first on glorifying God. I glorify God because I'm enjoying him. I know him. Now that I know him, I'm living life with him. As I'm living life with him, I am singing his praises. To me, that's a more biblical approach. That's how I would, uh, I would word it. If you think differently, maybe touch base with me on that. Now, the word of God, as you think about, is this a one-off? These two verses that we've looked at, is this a one-off in terms of putting an emphasis on lifting God up, magnifying God, exalting God with our lives, giving him glory? Is this a standalone passage? And the answer is, of course, no. The word of God repeatedly directs believers to keep the spotlight on the Lord. Repeatedly. I only have 11 passages we're going to look at tonight. There's many, many more. But let's start by turning to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Somebody was telling me the other night, I'm not making you turn pages enough. Some, some were saying they're actually forgetting where the stuff is in their Bibles. So we're going to page turn tonight. You've got 11 passages to look up. Bible's up in the air. Sword drill time. If we had the kids in here, we would for sure do that. How many of you think about that? Just doing some sword drills at home by yourself. Might be worthwhile. Start timing yourself. See how fast you can get around, navigate the thing that's supposed to be our guidebook for life. The thing that the pages should be worn out because we're so desperately interested in hearing what God has to say about his plan and purpose and provision for our lives. Instead of all the time we spend thumbing through our cell phones, if we took that same amount of thumbing time and the same amount of times that we touch our phone every day and we touched our Bible that often, we would be light years ahead spiritually. If you Google it, because everything on Google is true, but if you, were to, if you were to Google it, how many times a person has physical contact with their cell phone, I'm not talking about it being in their pocket, I'm talking about your fingers make contact with your phone, how many times that happens per day, consciously and subconsciously, it is staggering and it is scary. And I'm not using that as an argument. Uh, I'm just saying it's something to be considering when we think about how much time we spend touching or interacting with God's word. Because what you spill, what you're filled with, right? So sometimes... If you're a coach like I am and you coach kids and they keep doing the exact same thing, expecting different results, but they're not changing anything, they're not listening to any advice, they're not making any adjustments, is all of a sudden the thing that wasn't working before with no adjustments, no changes, is it now all of a sudden going to be successful? And the answer is, of course not. We would say that's the very definition of insanity to think it would. But it doesn't. So if we want something different than what we're currently experiencing, we have to allow the Lord to make some changes in our thinking. Some of that's on a very practical level. If I don't change the very practical aspects of my life and allow God to convince me that just a few alterations, a few modifications would be spiritually beneficial to me, how can I expect a different outcome? 
In any event, that's, that would be a whole other message. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Remember, these are passages about keeping the spotlight on the Lord. What does it say? Hear this. That's what Moses is saying on it's his swan song. He's at the end of his life here now. He desperately loves these people that he's been shepherding around under God's guidance for the last 80 years. But he says, hear this. And then verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now you could read on, we don't have time for it, but he says, these words, these specific words here, they shall be in your heart. And then he talks about, you shall think about them and teach your children them and speak about these things without ever stopping that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Now, is that exactly what we're talking about here tonight? Keeping the spotlight on God? Keeping our focus and fixation on Him as a way of acknowledging who He is and how awesome He is? As a a way of recognizing that and then acknowledging that? Yes, it's the exact same idea. It's about this mindset of my purpose is to be fixated and captivated by him. Turn to Psalm chapter 9. We've got four passages in Psalm. Psalm 9, verse 1. You see how it was all of your heart. It wasn't most of your heart. That was where your focus was supposed to be. That's the number one instruction that's being given. Jesus says that's the greatest commandment. He says the second is like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself because you're loving the Lord with all your heart. Then he says love others that way. So when you talk about loving God and loving people, straight out of Jesus' mouth as he says, under those two things, everything else could fall, could be arranged under that because they're all practical manifestations of those two principles. Now Psalm chapter 9 verse 1, it says, I will praise you, O Lord. Remember, that's a synonym here for glorify. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. There you have it again. I will tell of all your marvelous works, meaning I will acknowledge them. I will put the spotlight on you. I will be glad and rejoice in my circumstances. No, it doesn't say that, does it? I will be glad and rejoice in all the wonderful people that are making my life better. No, I will be glad and rejoice in you. That's where I'm going to find my joy. I will sing praise, another synonym there. I will sing praise to your name. I shouldn't say another one. It's the same one again. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Where's the spotlight need to be? Turn to Psalm 86, verse 9. This is a little bit more of a universal application now. Eventually, every knee is going to bow. Every knee is going to recognize that God alone should be glorified and lifted up. He's the one who deserves to be made big. He's the one who deserves to have the spotlight on him. He's the only preeminent one. Psalm 86, 9 says, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. And what will they do? They will glorify your name. Turn to Psalm 104, 33.
Psalm 104, 33 says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise, there's our synonym, to my God while I have my being, while I still have breath in my lungs is the idea, while I'm still alive, I am going to sing praise to my God, a personal God. Uh, Again, it's relational, friends. It starts with a relationship. As I live life with Him, as I'm captivated by Him, I naturally praise Him. I put the focus in the spotlight on Him. Turn to Psalm 145. Start with verse 1. I've quoted this this psalm in the past as far as it sort of speaks to this idea of being captivated and in awe of God. We'll pick up in verse 1. I will extol you, my God. May I lift you up. O King, I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. What's his focus, do you think? Well, it's on God. It's on making him bigger. It's keeping the spotlight on him. I will praise your name for how long? Forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, meaning he's worthy of praise. There's a lot of things to praise him about is the idea. And his greatness is unsearchable, meaning we can't even start to understand, fathom, or comprehend, or communicate how great our God is. Are you convinced of that? If you were, you would learn to trust him. You'd be depending on him. You'd be saying, he must know better than I do. I can take him at his word. Then he says, I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Majesty, again, another synonym. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts and I will declare your greatness. Same thing for glorifying the Lord. Same idea. We could, keep, we could keep going because this whole psalm is really about this. I'm not going to for the sake of time. Read that on your own a little bit more. Let's turn to Romans for a couple of passages. Romans chapter 11. Just in case you think this is an Old Testament principle and this isn't a New Testament thing. We need Romans 11.36. And this section, at least in my Bible, study Bible, we're talking about God's matchless wisdom, but in verse 36, this is the conclusion or the summary of this. For of him, of God, and through him, God, and to him, are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. This is a doxology, a prayer of praise to God. Well, probably... We, we've already passed by this, but as you think about a doxology or a way of praising the Lord, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now let's look at Romans 15, verse 5. Who deserves the glory? Him. How do we give him the glory? Because we're enjoying him. We're living life with him. We're fellowshipping with him. We have intimacy with him and it's spilling out of our mouth as we go through life. We're lifting him up and putting the spotlight on him. Verses five and six, 15, five and six. Verse five, now may the God of patience and comfort grant to you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. This is a prayer of Paul's. That you may, for what purpose? So we have that there that indicates the purpose statement. Why, do, why does he want them to be like-minded toward one another 
according to Christ Jesus. That you may be with one mind and one mouth, that you may with one mind and one mouth do what? What's the ultimate objective here? Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're looking for your purpose. Here is your purpose. It's a byproduct of enjoying the Lord. There's your purpose right there. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 6? We're going to pick up in verse 20. Very famous verse. For you, speaking to believers, were bought at a price. Now, if you were bought at a price, meaning if it cost God everything, even though it cost you nothing to be his child, it was a free gift to you, but it cost him dearly. So if you were bought at a great price, what's the conclusion? The only natural conclusion should be, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's anyway. We, We belong to him. We've been bought with his precious blood that was shed on Calvary. And so what should our purpose be in life? To make him bigger, to lift him up, to exalt him, to praise him. All synonyms for the same general idea of keeping the spotlight on him. Now look at 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Same kind of an idea. If we're now if our life is now hidden in Christ, then everything that we should do should be for his honor and glory. Pick up in verse 31. It says, therefore, this is the conclusion, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, just to make sure that we, it's a catch-all statement, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Have your focus in your mindset. I want to live to lift him up. I'm not going to do it through my own strength, but I want my purpose. I'm going to find my purpose in living to lift him up. Why? Because I'm enjoying who he is, what he's done for me. I'm learning about him. I'm drawing nearer to him. I am experiencing intimacy with him. And as a result, I want everybody to know how wonderful he is. It's like the song, isn't he wonderful, wonderful, wonderful? Now, that's specifically specifically about Jesus. Isn't Jesus my Lord wonderful? But it's an undivided Godhead. He's a wonderful God. I want to tell you about him. I can tell you about him convincingly, though, because I've tasted and seen this experientially, personally, and relationally, and intimately for myself. Otherwise, nothing you have to say to people about your God is going to be very convincing if it's not even real to you. You're not going to sell anybody on anything, not anybody with a little bit of common sense. They're going to see right through you if it's not real. I'm going to read a couple the last two passages for time. First Timothy 1.17. Now this is a song that's been turned into a song. It's also another doxology. Now unto the king, or now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen or amen. That king, that God, the king who is eternal, God alone who is wise, deserves honor and glory. For how long? Forever and ever. Revelation 4.11 summarizes that same thought by saying, you are worthy, O Lord, and nobody else is, to receive what? Glory and honor, synonyms, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created, meaning you are the supreme sovereign God and there's none like you. That's why you deserve, you're worthy, you deserve all of the honor and glory. Now as you think about how we're getting 
through the rest of this psalm, just know this, that the rest of the psalm starts to explain that God is awesome, that God is worthy of being in the spotlight. He starts off with the summary or the purpose or the expected outcome or the desired outcome, which is to glorify the Lord. Do this. And then he reminds them that the basis for doing that is that God is awesome. He transcends anything you could imagine, and he's worthy to be in the spotlight. So he's just reinforcing the basis for telling them or making the statement that God should be glorified. Now, why is he worthy of constantly being the spotlight in your life? It's because he's a majestic and awesome God. And he summarizes this very poetically, which is why we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, because it's, the poetry isn't really the focus. The focus is God is awesome, and he's worthy of receiving the glory. He's worthy of being in the spotlight of your life. And so he summarizes it poetically using a metaphor or talking about God in, in the language of a mighty storm. So it's intended to communicate and represent God's limitless power. And let's just read it really quickly here without going into a ton of detail, picking up in verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. There's part of our metaphor of a, a powerful storm. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. Say it directly here. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Said very directly here. He's a, he's a majestic God, an awesome God. Now the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars like a powerful storm can send even trees into splinters. It says, yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian, like a young wild ox. Now, those, those two things are referring to mountainous regions. He's saying he makes them quake or shiver or quiver or, or jump in reference probably to an earthquake. Then you keep going here. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire, probably a reference to a, a bad storm the lightning that is splintering and fracturing across the sky. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice, the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. So even the most remote places are not immune to God's power or the power that's being described here with this storm. Now the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. How many of you have seen straight line winds that just lay a forest straight down and just be nothing but trees blown over? Same kind of idea here in a powerful storm that's common. This, there's a little bit of disagreement about the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. The idea there usually is, is by most people, including those that translated it this way, is that it causes even animals to be prematurely give birth deer to, due to quaking or being so afraid. And, and naturally, if you saw animals terrified, you could imagine that picture. Now, that same word that's translated deer is translated as oaks. Somehow in the Hebrew language, the words are very close between deer and oaks. So if you go with the forest metaphor there and you, you look at the fact that he talks about stripping the forest bare, then making the oaks tremble, I think is the phrase for it here. Let me just pick it up because I'm jumping ahead. Many substitute oaks shake for deer give birth. So in the language, they're, they're both very close. So either way, in a storm, you could imagine a terrified premature birth by a deer. You can also imagine that in the terms of the metaphor with the splintering trees of Lebanon, that these oaks, which is the other 
which is highly regarded in that day. The cedars and the oaks were prized in terms of their strength and how big they were and how highly desired they were for building. And so the, the, even the oak trees are shaking. Is, so either way, the metaphor is picturing God's supreme majesty and power. And so he strips the forest bare. And what's the conclusion of all that, though? So those are a bunch of descriptive, poetic phrases, and they're wonderful, especially the one about he breaks the cedars, he splinters the cedars of Lebanon. These trees were so impressive. Man was fascinated by these trees because they were so massive in size and strength, and God's like, compared to God's power, they're just little splinters. That's, That's how much power God has. But what's the climax or the only response that's reasonable for man to have? We see it at the end of verse 9. And in his temple, now who says this? Everyone says glory with an exclamation point after it. The takeaway is as you think about God's greatness and, his pow- and how powerful he is, you have no choice but to make him bigger and give him the praise to magnify him. Now verses 9 and 10 are fascinating. I want to spend just a minute on them. But they summarize... God's greatness, but then they provide a personal application. So verse 9 summarizes how great God is. I'm sorry, verse 10 summarizes how great God is. And then verse 11 gives the personal application, the application that would be useful to the people David's talking to in the nation of Israel. So verse 10, he says, the Lord sat enthroned at the flood. At the time of the flood, at the time of the flood God was the one sitting on the throne. And the Lord sits as king forever. He did it then and he's still doing it now is the idea. So as you break that down, that's sort of a summary of the idea that God is the one and only sovereign and eternal king. And the flood is given as one definitive proof and example of God's limitless power. God had complete control over everything. He could, nature did his bidding as God acted during the time of unbelievable rebellion and rejection against him where the thoughts of man were only evil continuously. It was a complete and total rejection of God save eight people who chose the way of rescue and the way of salvation that was made available through the one door that led into the vehicle of rescue which was the ark that God had given specific instructions to know about. Eight people were convinced to trust God and to be saved in that day. And, and David's looking back at that and he's saying, and that same God who was king there, who was on the throne then, he's still king even today. So there's a summary of God's greatness, but what's the application? It doesn't end there. It ends with verse 11. And verse 11 says, now in light of that, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Not terror, not fear. So many churches and so many religious types are seeking to motivate people with fear and shame and guilt and regret, trying to just browbeat people into responding to God. God doesn't work that way. God says, I want you to respond to my love. I want you to respond to my grace. I want you to respond to how awesome I am, but in a reverent respect for me, but not in a sense of fear. I'm for people. I love people. I've provided everything that people need and I don't need any of their help. It was all by grace even when they didn't deserve it. I still love them anyway and I made a way for them to be made right with me not through their own actions, not through their own human works, not through their own human plotting and scheming and and efforts, 
but I made it possible through my own provision of the dearest thing that I had, which was, was my only begotten son, who came to earth to die for sins he never committed in the place of guilty sinners who deserve to be forever separated from God, every single man, woman, and child on planet earth. So because I loved you so much, I made a way for you to have access to me despite your sinfulness by having somebody else take your place, pay the debt you owe, die in your place. And as Jesus shed his blood for you and I, he said it was finished, that the debt that was owed by all men for all time was satisfied completely. And as proof of that, the Father raised him from the dead victorious over hell, death, and the grave. So there's nothing left that remains to be done to atone for man's sin because the perfect spotless sacrifice was already made and it was already accepted by the Father. So the question that every man has to figure out is, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Will you put your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ? He who believes is not condemned. But he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the, only, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is a gift from God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Now to him who does not work, but believeth on him who justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So how does man get access to God? By trusting in God's provision to deal with his sinfulness, apart from his own human efforts, apart from any religious ritual or work he could go through, but by simple faith alone in the finished gracious work of God alone that was offered to us when we didn't deserve it all based on God's love for us. That's a very different picture of God than many people portray. And this verse bears it out that he just gets done describing how awesome and powerful he is, God is, and then he says, and God's gonna use that power, he's gonna use that strength for your good, for your benefit, to preserve you, to give you peace, to give you safety. That's how God's gonna use it as it applies to his children. Now he's ultimately, the opposite is true for those who reject and rebel against God. Ultimately, they are going to face God's judgment, not because God wanted to judge them, but because they wouldn't accept the finished work of Jesus Christ. So as you think about the application here, because God loves you and cares for his own, recognizing his limitless strength and sovereign control should provide you with encouragement. It should provide you with peace. It should provide you with rest. See, God utilizes his resources for the good and, and for the benefit of his children. We have a rich and wealthy God who says that he's going to pour out those riches on us. He expends those riches for our well-being. He's not a God who doesn't give his children good gifts. He gives his children good gifts because he loves us so much. Now we access them through faith and taking God at his word and trusting him, putting our dependence in him. And so that fact alone, it provides adequate grounds for glorifying and worshiping him as I see how good he is. I see how he made it possible for me to have a relationship with him. As I experience that, and as I have that intimacy with him, I naturally praise him as I see all of his power, all of his majesty put to my benefit, applied to me as he cares for me, as he leads me, as he provides for my every need as he takes all of my burdens and carries them, as he is one who is willing to have, have all of my cares cast on him so that he could carry those weights, as he's the one who encourages me and lifts me up when I'm down. Now that gives me rest 
gives me peace because I see that this sovereign God of the storms, this powerful God who's described by this metaphor, that God is for me. He's on my side. He's advocating for me. He desperately wants me to thrive as I learn to trust Him in a spiritual sense. Now, what was our title? Glorifying the Lord. And I hope you take that away, that you glorify God by honoring Him, recognizing His majesty, and acknowledging His person and His work, who He is and what He's done. Remember our phrase that we summarize that with the statement of keeping the spotlight of your life on Him. Uplifting, exalting, praising and magnifying Him. And again, we can't do that while we're focused on self, our circumstances, and others. So the couple of questions I want to end with. Do you even consider how awesome God is? Do you even recognize all that He does for you? Do you see how limitless His power is? And if it's applied to those He cares about, there's nothing that you need to worry about? Do you even realize that your purpose in life is primarily to enjoy a relationship with Him? Do you realize that as you enjoy that relationship with Him, a natural byproduct of that would be this automatic and effortless praise of Him? That you wouldn't have to work hard to praise God. You would be praising Him because you'd be enjoying Him. And so glorifying God again, it's not not hard work. It just comes as a byproduct of living life with Him. And when you reverse the order of that famous summary statement, you're left with man's chief end is to enjoy God relationally and as a result to glorify Him. So the question becomes, where is your focus? Are you enjoying God? Sometimes you'd ask, am I praising God? Am I elevating Him, making Him bigger? Am I doing that? And if the answer is no, why not? And I I would submit to you that the reason you're not is because you're not really enjoying Him. You're not really living life with Him or tasting and seeing that he's good. Because if you were, the natural byproduct, effortless byproduct of that, would be that you'd be singing his praises. Your life song would be singing to him. You'd be living to lift him up. So oftentimes you come back to the real question being, where, where is your focus? Believers tend to fail miserably at keeping the focus on him, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can relate personally, experientially, and intimately with God. That's the greatest blessing you have. You can do that. You might not be doing it, but you can do it. And it's all by God's grace and through the enablement of His Spirit working in you. And when that's true, you can strive to do all things to the glory of God as we, talk about, as we talked about when we looked at our verses in Romans and 1 Corinthians. You, you could be doing that but not because you put the cart before the horse, but because you kept the proper focus on enjoying and experiencing and relating and having intimacy with him. Let's pray. Dear me, Father, thank you for this time that we could spend together in your word. Thank you that you're so, such a good God. Pray that you would help remind us that you are worthy, that we should be glorifying you, but also remind us, though, that that would be something that would be a byproduct of enjoying you. You naturally speak about and lift up and exalt the things that you're captivated by. Pray that we would be in awe of you, that we would be awestruck by you and captivated by you so that our life song would be the kind of a song that is continually singing your praises and making you bigger, which naturally means making ourselves smaller. Pray that we could do that again all is provided and made possible by your grace and, the, and through the empowerment of your spirit working in us. But pray that we would allow that to happen. Pray that we wouldn't resist that. We would even want that to happen and be prayer, prayerful about allowing you to make those changes in our thinking 
and then ultimately make those things changes in our manner of living. Thank you again for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.